Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 9. As we work our way through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11 is our text for this week. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. We continue in the eighth chapter of Romans this week, picking up with the contrast between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. Now, there is a sense in which the Christian, the believer, continues after regeneration, after being born again to repentance and faith. There is a sense in which this Christian continues after regeneration to live in the flesh. We struggle with this body of death, and we need our pastors and elders and older women to exhort us not to live in the flesh and not to give in to our flesh and not to heed our flesh and not to listen to our flesh or obey it. And the Apostle Paul's letter sermons, his epistles, each contain many exhortations that are explicitly given to the believer to walk in the Spirit and to not walk in the flesh. For instance, Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make what? Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And so it's one of the most helpful verses that there is in Scripture. You know, we should be fathers with our children in such a way that we teach them not to make provision for their flesh. So when we see that their flesh wants something that's inimical or, or destructive to the life of the Spirit in them, we make them able to see that. We help them to see it. And it's hard work. Inevitably, especially if it's girls, it'll produce tears. It's hard work. But we have to learn to not make provision for the flesh, and we have to teach our grandchildren and our children how not to make provision for the flesh, right? And so the flesh keeps living in us. We want it to be dead, but it just keeps on living, you know? Um, And so the Apostle Paul is often telling us to make no provision for the flesh, In 1 Corinthians 3, 1, the Apostle Paul says, And I, brethren, and remember this is Corinth, it's a church in Corinth, a very sick, sinful church that he writes this to. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of what? As to men of flesh. And then he says, in parallel construction, men of flesh, infants in Christ. As to men in flesh, as to infants in Christ. Yesterday on the way back, I was thinking through conversations I had at a, at a soccer game. And one of the conversations was, was with somebody who had been peeled off at Walmart this last week and had somebody who used to be at this church just, just sort of, you know, go after, but really go after the church. And so I, on the way back, I had a long drive. It was from Columbus, you know. Andy does that twice a day. Andy's done that twice a day for how long? Eight months. Oh, what a drive. It's bad enough to Nashville. Inevitably, somebody's going 32 up the hill. And and how do you pass going up the hill? And then when your aggression reaches its full bloom, it's 45 going into town. (laughs) It's like, oh. 
and the cell phone drops out and comes back in and drops and they don't even have knob on tenderloins anymore. So I had a lot of time to think by myself. And I began to go through all the people who have left this church through the years. <laughs> it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know? And so I called Mary Lee up to ask her why they'd all left. I couldn't figure it out. Why did they all leave? So much of Scripture, when we read it, we don't feel the humiliation that would have been involved in receiving it. And this is one of those places. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, and he says a lot of things like this. He says, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, and then, parallel construction, as to infants in Christ. There aren't many people who claim to be Christian today who will put up with that kind of talk. And so they leave. You have nothing to say to them. And if you try, they'll leave. And so then my heart was at peace. Because to be a Christian is to admit that we have to be constantly rebuked, admonished, encouraged, strengthened. We have to be told not to live in the flesh. We are fleshly creatures. And that's why we all love Adam Spadey. Because he specializes in the flesh. And the flesh is dying constantly. We'll come back to that. And so in the Bible, often it tells us not to live in the flesh, not to give in to the flesh, not to listen to the flesh, not to be infants, fleshly. But here, that's not what's being said. Here, it is making a radical distinction between those who live in the flesh and those who live in the Spirit. And it's saying the two have nothing to do with each other. And you must choose. And those who are in the flesh here are unbelievers. And those who are in the Spirit here are believers. And so the Apostle Paul here is trying to force all of us to out ourselves. We're either Christians or not Christians. We either have faith or we have unbelief. And so he's in the business of outing us at this point in this text. And so he starts out by saying, however. Now, however, again, constantly in these letters, we see that a word points to what came before. Well, however is a pivot word. And so it's pointing back to what came before. So what came before? Well, he just got done saying to us, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, and not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So those who are in the flesh can't please God. This is Stephen's sermon, okay? But those who are in the spirit are not in the flesh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And listen, what a relief, what peace, what joy, that we are not in the flesh, we're in the spirit. What freedom. How fully alive is that? Huh? Huh? There's no joy like the joy of the Lord. There isn't. We cannot overstate or overestimate the wonder of having been born again by the Spirit of God. You don't ever want to lose your first love. We have a living hope, and today, right now, we live in the knowledge of the Holy God. You remember my, I just love Eric Clapton, sorry. And I love his presence of the Lord. I have finally found a place to live in the presence of the Lord. How many of you remember back when I turned 40? And they organized a party for me. And 
in the party, Tim had gotten a band together, and they played in the presence of the Lord. Anybody here remember that? Nobody except Mary Lee. Do you remember that? You do remember that, yeah. He's still here in town. The presence of the Lord is a wonderful place for us to live. And it's a hint of what is to come. Barely a hint. And so we have a living hope. We live in the knowledge of the holy. God is our Father, and loving Him we obey Him, right? Right? And we're all there, right? Right? And then he goes and spoils it all. And the Apostle Paul is such a spoiler. Because the next word should not be used here. We've just learned to live in the presence of the Lord, and then the next word is what? If! Why does the Apostle Paul always do that? Why is he always saying if? Doesn't he know how to preach with grace? Doesn't he know how to give goodies without snatching them back? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do you know that he uses the word if four times in these verses? If. Now, you know that the word if is a conditional word. If then, you know. And so the Apostle Paul has just said categorically that they are in the Spirit. And then he stops and says, if indeed of truth... If, of truth, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, the Apostle Paul speaks to the Christians in the church of Rome, categorically saying to them, you, plural, you have the Spirit. You are in Christ. And then he says, if indeed, if in truth, if authentically, if actually... And there is no way that you can see the Apostle Paul writing that without knowing that he wants us to examine ourselves. Come on. Why would the Apostle Paul do that? Why doesn't the Apostle Paul give some cookies without taking them back? Why does he make us right at this point wonder whether or not we're Christians? Because that's what he's doing. He's saying, if in fact you're a Christian, why does he do that? Doesn't he know about eternal security? Doesn't he know that the most important thing for a pastor to keep the paychecks coming is to never call into question the salvation of anybody in church? He can call into question everybody out of church as long as he wants. But the people in the church and the people in their denomination must be given an ollie-ollie-in-free. You know, they must be spoken of as being Christians, and there must be no question about it. There can't be an if. But the Bible is the Word of God. God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to put these four occasions of if in here, and so they must be helpful. And if you're being truthful... And when earlier I said, isn't it wonderful to be in Christ? You will admit that the Holy Spirit, right as I said that, and it was the Holy Spirit's words, you'll admit, that as I said it, you sat there thinking to yourself, I wish I was sure. You know, I'm waxing elephant about it. You know, what a wonderful thing to be in Christ. It's just glorious, you know. And what does Satan, what is his character, what is his nature? His nature is to tell lies. He is the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he speaks the native language. And another thing it says in Scripture is that he is the accuser of the brethren. And that means both the brothers and sisters. And so the truth is many of you sitting here. When I was waxing eloquent, all right, we're sitting there thinking, I'm not sure that the spirit of of God does dwell in me. And so the Apostle Paul really is being kind 
of kind in saying if. Because he's not just going to leave you there, all right? When he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, he continues. And he says this, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, I want you to understand that this is how Scripture speaks to us. Scripture does not coddle us. It doesn't babysit us. It doesn't cuddle us. It doesn't stroke us. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't deal in uh, uh, unqualified uh, blessings. It's hard-edged. Scripture is hard-edged, and it's not actually a design flaw. It's intentional. And if you don't think the Apostle Paul should do this, you need to go back to the Gospels and see how Jesus deals with us. Because Jesus is constantly slapping us and then cuddling us. He is back and forth, back and forth, and he says no as often as he says yes, and he warns as often as he encourages. And so the Apostle Paul is just following the example of Christ. Christ is a perfect prophet. He does exactly what the prophets of the Old Testament do, where one of the things that's difficult about reading the prophets is that you jump immediately from the most horrible condemnations to the most wonderful blessings. And they seem to have nothing to do with each other, except that's how God deals with us. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, when the Bible tells us the wonderful blessing of being in Christ and of having the Spirit, and then says, if the Spirit is in you, and then says, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, then you don't belong to Christ. What is your response when those things are said to you? I hope your response isn't to just sit there complacently. If your response is for that to just go over you like, you know, a wave of warm wind with the smell of lilacs, you should not be complacent at this point. You know what complacency is? Do they have that word in South Africa? How do you, how do you say complacency in, in South African? Complacency? Very good. Very good. Have you been to school? I thought you were studying economics. This is Joel. Welcome, Joel. There has to be a first time for everything. You get personal attention in preaching here. Complacency is the enemy of sanctification. Nobody ever comes to heaven having been sanctified who's complacent and takes it for granted that God makes us holy. The reason the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit is because it is his work to make us holy. That's why. And so when we read that if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in us, we don't belong to God, none of us should be complacent. All of us should say, does the Spirit of God dwell in me? It's intended to say that to us. Now, what is the answer when we find ourselves asking this and when, when Satan accuses us of not being in Christ? What is the answer? I don't have a more sophisticated one than reading to you the end of Psalm 73 where you remember David is envying the wicked and the proud and the rich. And he's asking, how come he lives for God and they have all the fun? And he goes on and on about this, and then it gets to the end of the chapter, and he says this. And it is a non sequitur. It doesn't follow what he's been saying before, but out of nowhere, he just, he just exclaims, okay? Because what is there to do other than exclaim. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And I love it because I know what's the logic? What's the reason? What's, what's, you know, it doesn't make any sense to just come out with that. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? You know, it sounds like sort of an irrational act of desperation. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Listen, for Christians, that's the most logical statement in the world. In the end, David just simply says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And apart from you, I don't want anything. This is how we respond to the, to the accusations of Satan. We just say, I don't have anything else. Or what I, what I often think myself is, what I actually think is, I ain't going nowhere. Satan tries to kick us out of the church. He tries to kick us out of sanctification. He tries to kick us out of the Spirit. He tries to kick us out of assurance of salvation. And our response is, whom have I in heaven but you? And apart from you, there's nothing on earth I want. I ain't going nowhere. I ain't. It's similar to what Simon Peter responds to Jesus. You remember that Jesus has come out with the most scandalous thing he ever said on earth. Well, almost the most scandalous thing. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you may have no part in me. And everybody's scandalized by that because they say, are you serious, you know? Eat your body and drink your blood? And so a ton of them leave him at that time. It it seems to be that that's the time when more disciples left Jesus than any other time. And so they all get done leaving. And then Jesus turns to the disciples. And you remember what he asks? It's, It's very, very sort of, it's plaintive. It's poignant. It's sad. Jesus turns to them and Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? Remember that? And we read that Simon Peter, the loudmouth, answered him. And Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, I ain't going nowhere. We're not going nowhere. You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so when the Apostle Paul asks this question, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. And you ask yourself, do I belong to Christ? There's many, many places in Scripture that should give you comfort that there, you know, you can't argue that you deserve him. You can't argue your righteousness. You can't argue anything commending you. But what you can do is you can cry out in desperation and essentially say, I I ain't going nowhere. You alone have the words of eternal life. And I ain't going nowhere. Verse 10 If Christ is in you, though, the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, if you've you've kept track of where we're heading, he starts, however, and then he says, you guys are in Christ. You're not the dead ones. You're not the ones that can't please God. And then he says, "If, if the spirit dwells in you, and then if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to Christ. But then he comes back and says, if Christ is in you. And so you want to hear the inflection. If Christ is in you. So here we hit back the promise, the reassurance. Here we hit back the positive of the whole text. If, the, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so here we see that the Apostle Paul is assuming the answer is yes. That the Spirit of God does dwell in you. 
And this is the assumption that we see all through the epistles of the New Testament, that the Apostle Paul and the other writers assume that God has given repentance and faith to the people in the church, and that they are Christians, and that the Spirit of God is in them. All right? And that's what's going on here. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body is dead. We know that he says this because he says, though the body is dead. So we know that the text says the body is dead. So the body is dead. So Christian, your body is dead. Okay, your body is dead. Your body is dead and dying. In the midst of life, from Cranmer's prayer book, we live in death. In the midst of life, this is what we say at the committal service at the grave. In the midst of life, we live in death. You know, it's not just roadkill. You and I are constantly dying. Our body is dying. Our body is death. Our body is dying physically. We need a doctor. Our body is death because the flesh is death. Now, it says the body is dead because of sin. Whose sin is it? One of the things that, uh, that should drive us crazy as Christians is the lie that the world has that they're keeping track of what truth and justice are, and if we just conform to their explanation of truth and justice, then we will be as good as they are. And so this last week in an interview, I was asked by a guy who happened to be black, what I thought of, you know, this whole forgiveness thing down in Texas, right? And I had to have him explain it to me first because I hadn't read about it. And then I had to explain it, and I understood that, that what, what people, the social justice warriors, are saying to blacks is, look, uh, you can't betray your race by, by forgiving so easily. So apparently it's getting quite sophisticated. How to know what is just what is true, what is, uh, what is to be fully African-American or fully an immigrant or fully a Jew or fully this and that and the other. And listen, every single religion of the world has a set of rules that you have to live by to prove your righteousness, right? Social justice warriors have a whole set of rules, and you better not step out of line with them or it'll prove that you're actually awful. And you'll be told that. I mean, that's basically the purpose of Facebook, right? But the Muslims have the same set of rules, right? I mean, they're different, but it's a very, very, very particular set of rules that if you conduct your life by them, you will please God right? And we know that Orthodox Jews have these sets of rules, right? And you have to live by these rules, and if you live by them, you please God, or at least your mother. And we know that the Roman Catholics have these sets of rules, right? That's the reason they have seven sacraments, They have seven sacraments because you tend to multiply the moralism of your religion. (laughs) And, and, And listen, it's much easier to prove that you are a moral person in the Roman Catholic Church than in the secularist church of the public schools. Because the secularists specialize in 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 bloviating and logarithmic and and multiplicatory and and breed-like-rabbits rules. Secularists never stop manufacturing rules, and the rules even change from second to second. You have to keep up with them. Don't ever believe the lie that secularism isn't as rabidly religious as Islam. They're every bit as religious. The only thing is they claim to have a monopoly on the tax dollars. 
Don't take your eye off the ball. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm against public schools, although I sort of am becoming kind of almost completely. All right, but, but we'll leave that go because that's sort of a political statement. What I want you to see is everybody has a set of rules. Islam, Hindu, Buddhist, Confucius, uh, secularist, Orthodox Jew, uh, conservative Jew, which actually isn't Orthodox. Okay, they all have rules. All right, now, it says here in the text what? It says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so the question that you should have in this text is, what sin is it talking about? Is it talking about the fact that if you smoke, your body's going to die? Fits into the secularist worldview very well, right? Is that what it's talking about? That if you sin, you'll die. What sin is it talking about? The body is dead because of sin. Listen, the minute we go and assign blame, the minute we point to certain people as being the ones that are producing death, the minute we think that we have it figured out what social justice is, what South Africa should have done back in the early 80s in terms of apartheid, what the Afrikaners, you know, I remember going into the BCUSA and at Presbytery meeting after Presbytery meeting, there was no end to talk about the wickedness of the Afrikaners and apartheid in South Africa. And if they weren't talking about that, they were ter- talking about, um, what was it back then uh, uh, in, in Central America, uh, the Sandinistas. Every single Presbyterian meeting of these Presbyterian pastors, everybody was standing up and showing their righteousness in South Africa. And then they were showing their righteousness in Central America. And I sat there as a young punk just in the ministry, and I came up with this concept, and the concept is prophets at a distance. You know? We never find sin in ourselves. It's always somebody else's sin. That's the person we should be focusing on. Well, if I was the Afrikaner in South Africa, I'd divest myself of any connection to Afrikaners. And then we confess the sins of our grandparents and having slaves in America. Always prophets at a distance. Now listen, I'm I'm setting this all up because this is everywhere in our culture. But what I want you to understand is everybody's gotten you to take your eye off the ball because the real sin that's being talked about is not your sin or your grandmother's or your great-grandmother's. It's talking about the sin of Adam. If we want to blame somebody, forget the Afrikaners. Forget the Southerners. Forget this poor dude, you know, that got forgiven. Forget your mother that didn't love you. Forget your father who... The real person to blame is Adam. Because the Bible tells us in Adam we all die. And so when the Apostle Paul writes here, the body is dead because of sin, he's referring to Christians. He's saying the body is dead, and that is because of the sin of Adam. And so if we're interested in getting rid of our own guilt and examining ourselves and blaming somebody, blame Adam. But then stop and ask yourself, You know, what does that do for you emotionally? Really? Does it make you feel better to blame Adam? The body is dead because of sin. In Adam, we all die. God said that the minute you eat of that fruit, you will certainly die. And so Adam ate of the fruit, and from that point to this, we die. We are mortal beings. So blame Adam. How does that work for you? Does that make you feel more self-righteous? I mean, honestly, it doesn't make us feel better. And for feminists, it just blows their world apart. Because it wasn't Eve, it was Adam. 
<laughs> you know, that's the thing that no feminist will ever say, especially complementarians. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, I've asked you what sin caused death, and it was Adam's sin. I'm not saying ours hasn't contributed to it. But now I'm going to ask the same thing. What righteousness? You read what it says. It says, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So what righteousness is that? Is that recycling? Does that make your spirit alive? And, you know, we laugh at that because recycling is having a bit of a revisionist period right now, you know. What with China not taking our trash and all that, right? But what about Muslim prayers? What about daily mass? What about having devotions? You know how you feel guilty when you don't have devotions? What righteousness? Listen, brothers and sisters, that righteousness is not yours. You are not alive because of your righteousness. You remember Jeremiah says that all of our righteousnesses is filthy rags. Your hope is not the Roman Catholic doctrine of infusion. Your hope is not that day by day, you become more worthy of heaven. When you die, even if you are the most saintly grandmother who ever lived in Indiana, when you die, you will not deserve the presence of the Lord. Your only hope is the righteousness of the perfect Lamb of God. That's it. And if you get nothing out of the book of Romans other than this, you must see that the book of Romans intends to obliterate our pretense of righteousness. That's the whole theme of Romans. The Apostle Paul is a master exposer of the deviousness of our self-righteous hearts. One of the sad things about secularism is that if you ever say anything against its righteousness, people think you're making a political statement. And so most Americans are actually the religion of secularism. But it's this really sophisticated ploy where they claim they're not a religion, and so you can't ever address any of their righteousness because you're just viewed as making a political statement. Do you, do you understand this? And it puts you in a straitjacket. You can't testify to your faith because, well, you're just Republican, <laughs> you know? Well, actually, no, I'm not. No Christian is a Republican. I mean, how demeaning. You know, I get up and I salute the flag at soccer games and everything, but I always feel like a hypocrite doing it. Because I think if people there knew what my real allegiance was, They'd tell me to sit down. You know, they would not want me saluting the flag, thinking what I'm thinking, which is that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is my Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, we're always caught in this political thing where, you know, we're not supposed to make any comments about anything that's political. And then guess what's political? Sodomy? Political. Abortion, the slaughter of unborn children? Political. Divorce, adultery, fornication, theft by social media, you know, you know, greed and envy by socialism. Everything that the law of God reveals is political. And boy, I'm telling you, we're doing a good job of being gagged, you know, we're never on the offense, we're just on the defense. It's not the Apostle Paul going in the Areopagus saying, ye men of Facebook, I can see that you're very religious beings. I mean, can you even imagine writing that on your Facebook page? 
It's all your friends. You friends on Facebook, I can see that you're very religious beings because you have morals about absolutely everything. On every corner are your morals. Well, I'm here to declare a moral to you that you have never heard of. It's the moral of thou shalt not slaughter unborn children. I mean, come on. This is what the Apostle Paul was doing in Athens. He was taking the place of their greatest pride. And he was going, what? <laughs> you know, I can see you're very religious people. You even, have a, you even have an idol to an unknown God. Well, I'm here to declare this God in him, you live and move and have your being. Oh, these Athenians were so sophisticated. They knew every God there was, and just to keep, just to keep on the good side of any God there might be, they didn't know they had, a, they had an idol to him too. And the Apostle Paul comes in, and he just whops them. And he doesn't just do it to the commoner on the corner. He goes in the Areopagus. This is the most sophisticated leaders of the city of Athens, and that's where he goes and says that. But we were so worried about being called political that we just get gagged, you know, and we just say, well, I'm a good person. Oh, are you? No, I don't believe in racism. And, and I think women should be able to, and, and, how come Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have all the money? And that's as sophisticated as the morals of Facebook get. And there's not even an interesting thing said by Christians. <laughs> you know, this is just drop-dead boring. You know what John Wesley used to say about preaching? Wesley said, you know, set a fire, let it burn, and everybody will come to watch. Here's an idea on your Facebook page. You know, set a fire. Let it burn. In other words, be interesting. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, proclaim the death of every man and woman in Adam on Facebook. Okay? Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Proclaim the righteousness of Jesus and the bankruptcy of any other righteousness, particularly secularism's righteousness. Proclaim them. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing to the Roman church. And then he says this. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But, so again, you got this adversative thing going on. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, the assumption is the Spirit of God dwells in you, dwells in everybody in the Roman church. And he says that because the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and that Spirit is dwelling in you, the same God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Listen. It is speaking about the work of sanctification. That the Spirit of God gives life to our mortal bodies in this life. You know, the Bible says that it, nobody has given up house, home, or anything like that, uh, but that they receive a hundred times in this life and the life to come. And that's also true of holiness, that we receive much holiness from God in this life. We have much life given to us by the Holy Spirit in this life. It is amazing how much work is done in this, in this life by the Holy Spirit and how mortific, mortifying that work is. Mortifying means um, having to do with death, killing. 
we have had the privilege recently of having one of our brothers confess sin. And man, is it mortifying, eh? But the very mortification of our body of believers here has produced an unbelievable harvest of life. As we cry, we have hope we never knew before. (laughs) First of all, hope for ourselves. You know, we think, where would that happen? In what universe would somebody confess to sin? And then we remember that because he lives, we also shall live. And so we look at the death of a man confessing his sin, and, and, and we're perverse, or we're natural. And I like to say we're natural, we're not perverse. We rejoice in the confession of sin. Because when someone confesses sin, we remember that we are all under the cross and that there is no hope for us except for the righteousness of Jesus. And that produces life. That produces singing that is more zealous the minute the confession is made. That produces better prayers. It produces more patience between us in marriage and with our friends. We're more understanding. Yesterday, I was at a soccer game and it was over in Columbus, and there's this park, and this park is filled with people, and it's unbelievably, fabulously beautiful and glorious and wealthy. All the fences are perfect. All the children are above average. And I drove in there with a bunch of my grandchildren, and you drive in, and they have this gatehouse, and at the gatehouse, they tell you that you have to give them $4 for every single child in your car. And it stops at four, and Knox just turned five. And it's like, are you serious? I, I'm to give you $24 to get to this stupid game? I've just driven an hour, and now I have to give you $24? I mean, at Lighthouse, it's five. And so I looked at the lady, and I said, I'm not giving you more than 20 And so the lady looked at me and she said, I don't set the prices. And I said, I know you don't. And, and 20 is my final offer. <laughs> I didn't actually say my final offer. But I, I made it clear that I thought 20 was enough money for me to get in that place, you know. And she said, well, that's, that's the cost. And I said, okay. I said, I, I'm going to turn around and leave. So I left, drove up the road about 150, 200 yards, and then told Knox to get out of the car and, <laughs> and, and walk across the field over there is where Lighthouse is. And we set him on his way and he, he climbed over the fence. And a few minutes later, I came back in and drove up to the lady and I handed her a 20. And I said, this is, and she looks in, she counts the children. She says, did we lose a child? I said, yep. And she was cheerful, and I went in. (laughs) And I told a couple people that there, and they were all proud of me, and I thought, this is what it means to be a pastor. (laughs) Standing for truth and justice and morality and, you know, okay. Well, then at the game, somebody apologized to me for sin, My kids' grandchildren loved me for it. Well, then, when it came time to leave, for some reason, I think they want you to see all their beauty before you can get out of there. Because, I mean, I had to drive for 10 miles around roads to get out of that park. Was anybody else there? I mean, it was like, nowhere! I stopped and asked for directions, you know? It's like... Can I get out of this place, please? And by the time I got up to that gate lady, my conscience had been fully reformed. I had been mortified by the Spirit. Do you see this? The Spirit of God had been working death in me, 
and it produced life. Because you know what I did? I stopped my car, I got out of the car, I took $4 over to that lady, and with a smile on my face, I said, hi. I said, you remember me. I said, here's four more dollars, (laughs) you know? And she said, oh, you don't have to do that. And I said, no. I said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You know what she said? She said, well, bless your heart. (laughs) And I thought, I'm 65. And this is the level of my sin. It's disgusting. I mean, I'm not telling you about the bad things, but that's bad. Listen, God is pleased to have us die day after day after day. God is pleased when one of us confesses sin. God is pleased when we forgive and are forgiven. And it seems like death to worldlings, but those of us in the know, it's not death, it's life. And that's the work of the Spirit in you. And if there's no more hope in you other than the fact that you constantly are confessing sin and asking for forgiveness, that's state of the art. There's nothing better than that. Okay? So you pray for me that I will not scandalize people by my behavior as a pastor. Okay? and my grandchildren. And pray especially the next couple of weeks because we're going to have a whole ton of them in our house living for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so I need your prayer because I've lived without little kids for a long time now. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we are under conviction of sin. We count this a treasure. We pray that you will give us hope that the Spirit of God is mortifying us day by day, and that that mortification of sin does produce life in this life and in the life to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.